Welcome to the EuroCleo podcast, Pastime Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas Soltberger, and I will be your co-host for this episode, where we will talk about history education in Colombia uh, as an example of how history can uh, contribute to peace and reconciliation in a post-conflict society. For this particular episode, I'm joined by my excellent colleague, Alicia Reilarstam. Uh, welcome to the podcast world, Alicia. Hi, Andreas. Thank you for having me. So, Alisa, you've you've actually um, been living a bit in Colombia and you've been studying a bit about the conflict. Uh, is that right? Yes, that is right. Yeah, I as a as a student in Sweden, actually, I went on exchange to Colombia to the National University to UNAL in 2019, um, which later led me to focus my thesis on uh, feminist activisms um, during and after the recent peace negotiations that, of course, led to the signing of the accord in 2016. So I'm very excited to be talking to our guest today. Great. Let's um, dig into it and uh, speak with uh, our great guest for today, which is um, Professor Maria Emma Wills, who is a yeah, professor in, in Bogota. We're joined today by Maria Emma Wills, who is a Colombian political scientist whose contributions span many different disciplines, um, political sciences, feminism, Latin American history and memory studies. From 2012 to 2018, she served as advisor to the director of the National Center for Historical Memory, where she was in charge of developing pedagogical tools for school teachers, promoting regional university groups on historical memory and building bridges with both the military and the police, as well as the business sector. She remains a professor at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, um, from where she's speaking to us today. So Maria Emma, could you tell us a bit more about your past involvement with the National Center for Historical Memory and your involvement with them? Okay, well, good morning, Alicia, and thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure. So uh, I think that for uh, an international audience, the first thing to say is that in 2011, we had peace talks with the FARC, one of the guerrillas in Latin, in, in Colombia. And um, to order that peace talk, uh, there was a law that was approved. The law established a system of institutions to allow for the reparation, the integral reparation of victims of the conflict, of the armed conflict. And among those institutions, it wasn't the, the only one, sorry, um, the center was created. So its main, its main objective was to repair, symbolically repair the victims. Um, why is symbolically, uh, symbolic reparation so important in a process, in a peace process? Because the victims, many times have been not only hurt physically, but also symbolically and emotionally. One thing that the war does is strip the victims of their, their own voice. The, the armed conflict and the actors of the armed conflict establish their own discourses and in, in many ways, humiliate the victims, not only through material vo uh, violence, but also through symbolic violence. So the center had 
first of all, to listen to the victims, to validate their voices, to say, yes, what you're telling me really happened during the armed conflict. And what you're telling me is a pedagogical legacy for the new generations to think how awful and how, how um, dehumanizing the war was in Colombia. So that's the Centro. And I worked there. The Centro was made up to really symbolically repair the victims. Maybe another thing I should say before uh, going deeper into the conversation is that in Colombia, uh, we have more than 7 million Colombians who, who have been force, forcibly displaced. Um, we have more than 80,000 people disappeared. We have more than 35,000 and Colombians who were kidnapped. Uh, we had more than 13,000 um, people who suffered from sexual violence. So, I mean, I I'm giving you the, the numbers because I think that sometimes people do not know how hard and, and how, how terribly massive the war has affected Colombians. I, I thought it was very interesting how you mentioned uh, pedagogical legacy. Um, obviously, we're, we're talking to you as, a, as an association of, of history educators, and the, the pedagogy of this would, would be interesting to us to, to hear more about. So um, how, how have you done this center? What, how have you tried to, to, to share this pedagogical uh, legacy? What have you tried to, to achieve with that? Well, one thing we have to take into account is that in Colombia, although the war has left massive numbers of Colombians um, as victims, there's a great difficulty in talking about the war. So it's a paradox. Um, I think that probably people are, are feel overwhelmed because of the massivity and the horrifying stories of the victims. So um, we've been in war for 50 years, but people do not want to face, to recognize, to acknowledge, to reckon the war we've been living through uh, for very different reasons. So the, 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 the main question for historians and historians of, of contemporary history, of, of very recent history is how can you make history a field of reflections, ethical and moral reflections on what happened during a conflict? Um, I know that there are people who say you should not talk about the conflict. You should not go back to history when you are transitioning from a conflict, an armed conflict. Better be silent about what happened because it's too fresh. Well, in the center, we thought the contrary. And we thought the contrary because Colombia has been going through different cycles of violence. And probably one of the reproductions of the, that violence 
is that new generations do not know what the older generation lived during the armed conflict because we've been so quiet about it. I mean, we've, we've done peace negotiations and we went from La Violencia, which was a, a, a very violent dynamic during the 40s, 50s and 60s. And although there was a commission, a sort of pre-truth commission in Colombia, uh, that the, the findings of that commission didn't become a public matter. It didn't become a public topic. So what we thought at the center is silence can be a terrible, um, a terrible mechanism of reproduction of violence because the new generations do not know what what happens once they go into unarmed organizations? They do not know uh, the terrible conditions their families had to go through. So instead of silence, we said historical memory is a public um, good and uh, society should be speaking about what we lived through, speaking in such terms that it doesn't um, lead to war, but to very difficult, democratic, contentious conversations. So the, the, the aim was, let's talk. <laughs> war is uh, very noisy, um, very noisy. And you hear during the war, uh, let's say, uh, hate speeches, and you hear discourses that legitimize uh, some side of the war. Now we want to have a serious conversation of what happened during the war um, so that we can acknowledge our responsibilities and move for forward so that the new generation really has an appreciation of what we lost of humanity, of, of a kind, kind and solidarious link to others. Let's, let's talk about what we lost so that they can do better than we did. And, and that silence that you, you talk about that, you know, it's a very difficult topic, obviously, to, to, to touch upon, I presume also was reflected in the classroom then, or, or among teachers and, and history teachers yes. in particular, that they simply did not really teach about the conflict. Is, is that the case in your experience? Well, uh, let me give you some, some um, context on um, history education in Colombia. In Colombia, we went through a huge reform in the 80s, uh, where instead of having different classes, geography, history, um, we had, I don't know how, how it's called now, but let's say project thinking. Students had to think about a topic from different perspectives. So history was raised and what really happened was dramatic because instead of having interdisciplinary thinking, which was what the aim of the reform was, we had a great silence on history 
and the lack of historical thinking among students and teachers. Because I must say that it's not only a problem of the young generation, but the old generation doesn't have the ABC of history, uh, historical thinking, you know, sequences. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to become a bore and say what historians should do because you're, you know better than me, but historical thinking um, disappeared from the, 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 the classroom. And of course, if that, that thinking disappears, to a certain extent, what disappears is a reflection, uh, a thoughtful thinking of uh, who we are, of, nation, of national identity. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer that nationalism is um, an essence and that you know who you are through a very sort of uh, close look of, of your history, but you need to reflect on who you are, where you come from in the classroom. Um, and that disappeared from Colombia and from the schools for teachers. So teachers do not have the tools to speak about the past, which is dramatic. So how, how did we start? Um, well, we, we thought about how others had started to, to, to speak in the classroom about difficult topics. And um, we went through what Facing History and Ourselves did in the States with historians. And we took from them the idea that history is not only speaking about the past, but speaking about you in the present and your link with the past. It's about memory, in fact. It's who you are vis-a-vis -vis what others went through in the past. And, and what you think about the past makes you who you are in the present and leads you to open yourself to imagining a better future or a future. See. The past really is about the future. It's not only about the past. And so that, that uh, principle, I think, is what sort of illuminates the whole endeavor of what we did during the, the six years I remained in the center. Um, the, the toolbox that we created with school teachers and with some young people, really starts not from history, but from who they are now, what their dilemmas are, uh, what are their conflicts, what are their problems, anguishes. And from there, you know, choosing with them a problem in the present, we went back, back in history, thinking about how others have lived through those problems. So I, I'm going to give you examples because this sounds very abstract. So for instance, the center, uh, one of the main uh, uh, arguments of the center is that the, the conflict over land in Colombia fuels the armed conflict. It's not the only cause, 
but it, it, it's a setting. It's a propitious setting for uh, resolving conflict through arms. So how do you talk about the land problem with, for instance, children who are in an urban setting? Uh, you cannot start from, oh, we have a land problem. That's too abstract. So we started about, uh, we started by, by talking about conflicts. They live in their neighborhoods or in the schoolyard, for instance, uh, probably in your country also, the, the kids have enormous fights over who's going to play in the football uh, yard, in the football field. So let's talk about that, that, that conflict and let's, let's hear what the stories about the conflict are so that the kids can see that there are different perspectives around the conflict, not one, no one truth, but perspectives. And um, let's talk, and that was very difficult, about how, why that field, that football field, is so meaningful for them. Uh, so that they could understand that material spaces are not just material spaces, but also have a significance, a meaning. And it's the meaning that makes them so um, important for the kids. Once the kids understand that space is meaningful, we go and listen to how peasants talk about the land through uh, the singing they've made, the poetry they have made. Um, and, and so we are not asking the peasants, what does the land mean to you? I mean, that's a, <laughs> the behind question. We are letting the peasants tell us the meaning the land has for them through their own languages and production, cultural productions. Once the children get that they have their hearts, I mean, involved in, in those spaces, they can understand how important the land is, but not only how important the land in economical terms, but also in cultural terms for the peasant communities. I mean, I just wanted to give you one example, but I have others about for instance, stereotypes, stigmatization, and they, they, they follow the same pattern. Let's start by talking about stereotypes and bullying between you, see? Uh, let's, let's understand the problem. Let's see how when you stereotype another uh, being, human being, you are hurting that person and that person feels terrible. And probably you will only understand how you hurt that other person when you think of how it hurts when others stereotype you. So we do a lot of plays around stereotyping and then we go into the armed conflict, how stereotypes transform, transform into stigmas and stigmas dehumanize the other and allow for violence and, and horrifying violence to occur. You've mentioned the toolkit, learning peace and unlearning war, and you've also mentioned the difficulties of teaching history with such a recent conflict. And my question is, 
um, what is the role of history education in addressing the conflict and what role do you see it could play? Well, part of that question has been already answered, but let me say that um, I think that historical memory in the classroom opens up conversations that the children have need to hear and need to be part of, because um, if you think about the war in Colombia, you can see that the armed organizations reproduced the, themselves but by recruiting young people. I mean, uh, the armed conflict still goes on in Colombia. I don't think it's the same we had before the, the accord, the peace accord, but it, it, we do still have armed organizations and they feed on young people. They feed on, on the most vulnerable people and, and they recruit younger and younger people. And I think that you need to talk about the past because those young people that go into these armed organizations, most don't really know what happens once you go in. Those institutions, those organizations are uh, what sociology uh, calls ferocious, ferocious organizations. Once you go in, you cannot get out. <laughs> and you cannot get out because you, you have too much information about the organization. You know who the commanders are. You know about the routes they use for the, the trade, the, the coca trade, et cetera, et cetera. So most of the young people don't go there because of convictions. Maybe some go, but most of them go out into these organizations because they don't have opportunities within their context. They don't have conversations about what it means to go into these organizations. That's for the, the young people who are being recruited. And for those who are not being recruited and are part of the society that watches, watches what happens in Colombia, those young people also need to uh, debate on what it means to be living in a country where you have violent, organized, uh, uh, actors, and you need those people to think and reflect on those armed organizations because if they don't reflect about those armed organizations, their political standing, their citizenship, well, if you don't have the past in your, in your uh, formation as a citizen, you take decisions very on, 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 on the last scandal, but you do not have a historical thinking that allows you to navigate around those, those decisions. Let me give you an example, not on Colombia, but on the States, the United States of America that has gone through um, a very hard election this past year. What was behind 
the, the divide in the states. What was the divide? It was history. How do we talk about America? America, that, well, they call themselves America. <laughs> they are North America, but anyway, who we are, who we are. That was what was at stake. Why did it become so violent? Because no one really talks about that violent past, that slave past in the classroom, in depth. I mean, not only let's talk about the war, the secessionist war in North America. No, let's talk how uh, slavery was a system and how slavery became part also of other mechanisms of racism that still are standing in North America. So if you do not have historical conversations in the classroom, then you have that kind of war we saw in North America, that kind of explosion of two Americas because they never had those conversations in the classroom. See? So you need history to be part of that conversation, but a historical memory, not just history as the past past, but the past that illuminates the present. So you can have citizens that really are lucid vis-a-vis -vis who they are and the positions they take vis-a-vis -vis the dilemmas they face. This is really, really interesting. And I, I thought, um... It actually connects with uh, with another question that I, I had for you, which yeah again touches on how history education can play a positive role, but it can also, to some extent, sometimes cement conflict. And uh, about a year ago or so, we had we featured an interview with Dr. Angela Bermudez on our website. Um, Angela, incidentally, is also from Colombia, and she has been researching how violence and, and violent conflict is presented in history textbooks. In fact, comparing the Colombian situation with that of the US, but also with Spain, where she's based now. And of course, her findings indicate that, especially in, in history textbooks, there is a great normalization of violence, uh, partly because the experience of, of victims are definitely in a general absent from the narrative that is shaped in in history textbooks that are used in, in the school system. Um, now, I understand that part of the work that you have been doing uh, in the past with, with the center is that you actually do place the focus really on, on the victims as well, and you tell the story of the victims. So obviously in that way, history education can be really, really important. Um, but I, I wanted to, to ask you how you see, um, basically a bit about the success of your, of your work too. Did you see how uh, this has been used in uh, in education in Colombia. And have you have you had teachers being interested in in hearing or, or using the stories of victims? Um, I think that the testimony of victims is central, but it's it's not the only source we used in the toolbox, because the testimonies have to be surrounded by context. No. What is the context of those testimonies? So for instance, yes, of course, we put a, a great emphasis on uh, the victims, the peasant victims in, in that example I gave you 
are the center of one of the chapters where we discuss a massacre, a peasant massacre that occurred. Um, but before going into the, into the testimony, we go through the discourses of the armed actors that justified the violence. So the, the young people hear what the, the head of the paramilitaris had to say about massacres. They, they hear also what the guerrillas had to say, and they hear also what the military had to say about the, the conflict. So first of all, before, before going into the testimonies, you go critically through the discourses used to normalize the violence. You have to have one, one moment of reflection around what they said, uh, how they justified what, what they said, and um, uh, sorry, the violence. And then you go into the harm they, uh, this, the, this discourse is unleashed through the voices of the victims so that the young people can reflect on how discourse, although it, it's not armed, justifies armed solutions to problems. So um, I would say that it's not just listening to hardship and harm and uh, harrowing testimonies. You do need the historian, the, 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 the lucidity of, uh, of the historian to say, okay, where, uh, where, how do I organize what I, I'm, I'm going to discuss with the, the children and the young people, see? Um, another, another topic, and I think that with Angela, maybe we have different standings uh, because I don't know, I haven't talked to her for a long time, but you know, um, talking about violence, political violence in the classroom is very hard because all the actors have justifications. So what you want is that the young people really reflect on the consequences violence has on their lives and the community and their communities. But I don't think that the, the, the ethical north of historical memory in the classroom is saying that violence never happens or that violence is always bad. I mean, violence is an option. What you want is that, that the young people reflect before taking an arm what the consequences can be on their lives, their communities, and their country. And um, it's very difficult, but <laughs> and, and that is a sort of um, tension with peace education. I don't know if peace education talks about the Second World War, probably it does, but probably you know that one of the big discussions of, of that Second World War is 
why did England and France take so long to stop Hitler? No, why did they, as as countries, uh, have? And I, I can understand why. I mean, I know why. But the, saying that peace is the only solution when you have Hitler in your backyard is, is nuts. No. Mm, there are certain positions that you cannot, how do you say, accept because then your most valuable uh, thinking and, and values, your values will be completely trashed. So what I'm trying to say that is that between historical memory and peace education that sometimes goes too far in the sense of thinking, oh, violence is always, always, always bad. You say, oh my God, that's too simple. That's too simple because in history you have dilemmas. And certainly the Second World War is a big dilemma, no? <laughs> Indeed. So it is in the in a sense more about contextualizing it and showing a bit the the concrete consequences of it. Exactly. I think we have uh, a couple more questions and then we we will finish off. But um, one one thing I was wondering is that you you mentioned that you yourself looked towards facing history in ourselves uh, when you were starting your work, and I was wondering if you could offer any advice to other history educators uh, who want to teach more about conflicts, be it in their own, if they are living in, in societies like Colombia that have experienced and uh, that have a recent experience with conflict, but even elsewhere where it can still be a very difficult topic to bring into the classroom. I think that imagination is very important. Um, so, First of all, I think that history educators, and I, I will say it again, are not only educators of the past. They are educating the present citizens of their country. And so they have to bring to life what the past can tell about the present. They have to make the topics of the past really meaningful for the young people in their classrooms. The history is really an imagination field, a field where you imagine how others in other corners of the world and of, of, of history lived through hardships or even through moments of, of, of hope so that you can understand better who you are in the present. So school teachers have to have imagination. They have to bring to life what happened before so that the children they have in their classroom can take better decisions or at least decisions more reflected upon. So that's what I would say, you know. And I would, you know, sometimes it's difficult, but I would also work with the, family histories and uh, I mean historical memory is a field that can bring family histories into the classroom 
and I think that that makes makes it more lively than just thinking about dates and names. Uh, I'm not saying dates and names are not important. Uh, don't don't get me wrong, but they have to speak to the present. They have to really become meaningful. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned the need for reflection and the center that you've been involved with for six years is set to open a historical memory museum in Bogota. In I think it's set to open next year if uh, everything goes well. How do you think museums can and should play a role within history education more broadly, but also especially if we're looking at the Colombia case, of course, um, in, fost in fostering peace reconciliation? Uh, museums are also a kind of uh, imagination field because they have to connect the audiences, the publics that go to the museum to the stories they, they want to put in, 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 in the museum. But the big question behind those stories is what, what do you really want? And I would say that in countries that got, have gone through uh, conflict, is that the children and, and young people and even the old people that go to the museum understand, understand and listen to the voices of those they have not wanted to listen to. I mean, the museum is like an, an, an open box. It should open hearts and minds so that people who go into the museum and listen to the voices of others, others they've never listened to because maybe they are on the opposite side of the fence. Let's put it that way. So that they can understand the responsibilities and the complexities behind the conflict. I'm, I'm talking about Colombia. So um, now there's a huge debate around the museum in Colombia because the actual director does not understand what it really means to bring the memories of all Colombians into that museum. For instance, the last debate was around an exhibit on indigenous communities in Colombia. So indigenous communities in Colombia say, you know, for us, violence didn't start in 57. Violence has been part of our lives uh, since the Spaniards arrived. And so if you are going to put our stories in that museum, the date of our stories will not follow the dates, let, let's say, traditional history has for the Colombian conflict. We want to talk about the genocide at the start of the 20th century, you know, the caucherias, the, the caucho economies in the south of Colombia, they produce a genocide, a huge genocide, not in the textbooks of history. Of course, what a shame, but it was done. So as, as a museum of historical memory of Colombia, are you going to tell them, no, 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 no. Your history is not part of the uh, contemporary Colombian history. That's stupid. I mean, that answer from my point of view is stupid because what you want is the people of Colombia 
to open up to other stories and understand the discrimination, the systematic discrimination that the indigenous communities have lived in Colombia. So you have a standing, no? Historical memories about taking stands, no? Stands. I'm not saying that you should take stands in militant party stands. I'm meaning vis-a-vis -vis what kind of democracy do you think about? Who are the, the people uh, on that democracy and who can speak about their past? So <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that museums are a public sphere for conversations that nations have not been uh, wanting to have. And it's about what kind of democracy you want for your country. That's what is really at stake in a museum. I, I can imagine that um, such a museum would also ultimately have to navigate a difficult political situation. And that's one question we didn't really touch upon yet. So I, I, if, I, if I may, I will just ask you that very last question. And uh, it's basically in your work with the center in the past, but also now as, a, as an academic, do you, do you experience any pushback? And how, how does that manifest itself? Of course. I mean, <laughs> um, maybe I should have started by giving that context to the audience. Um, we have two different gaze on the past in Colombia. On one side, you have those Colombians who say, that was not an armed conflict. That was a terrorist attack on a legitimate state. And it was legitimate because it was legal. That's one side of the story. So in that story, uh, you name the guerrillas as terrorist actors and you name the state as a legitimate state because it was legal. On the other side, you have those who say, um, we had an armed conflict and the context is very complex, but remember the 60s, remember you know, the student movement, remember the Cuban revolution. I mean, we're three hours from Cuba. Um, and so you have a context, a Cold War context, where you had two sides, clearly, you know, the left and the right. But what I'm trying to, to, to show is that the other side accepts that there is a conflict, accepts that the guerrillas had a, an agenda, a political agenda, and so accepts there, there should be negotiations with those guerrillas. Because if you see the guerrillas just as terrorists, you do not sit down to negotiate. You sit down to demobilize them, you know, to crush them. And that has a great impact on today because, uh, of course, <laughs> how are we going to talk about the past if the way we speak about it is so different, you know? So you have to take a stand. 
And, and we took a stand. I mean, in, in 2012, when we went into the Centro, we took a stand. We, we took a stand for the negotiations. We took a stand for uh, reforms, liberal reforms. We took a stand to ne for the negotiations. We took a stand uh, for uh, transitional justice, no impunity, but a different kind of sanction over the guerrillas. And those are very contentious matters in Colombia right now. However, <laughs> let me say that although they are contentious, we should be speaking about them the whole time. Not saying silence, silence. Let's not speak about it because it's too hard. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Maria Emma Wills, for sharing your, your thoughts and your experience from your very important work in Colombia. It was a real pleasure to talk to you about this, these issues. And uh, I think we wish you all the best uh, with your, your future uh, endeavors at highlighting the, the ped pedagogical legacy of, of the conflict in, in Colombia. Uh, thank you, Andreas. And thank you, Alicia, for having me in your program. <laughs>